Hi everyone and welcome back to Doc's Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii. We hope that Doc's Talk Story can inspire and help medical students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Mike Tom, a geriatrician at Queen's Medical Center. He completed his training here in Hawaii, attending medical school, internal medicine residency, and geriatrics fellowship all at UH. Hi, Dr. Tom, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, How did you get to where you are today, and why did you initially decide to go into internal medicine? So my journey started mainly probably from the time I was born. I was born to two physicians, so they certainly had a heavy influence in me, although they tried their best not to steer me in a particular direction. But probably the strongest influence actually came from my grandparents, so similar to a lot of folks in Hawaii. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up, mm-hmm. and I cherish them dearly, uh, even though they've passed on. And so during college, I kept that as an open door. I stayed up as a pre-med, like a lot of good pre-meds do. And eventually, near my junior, senior year, I started to solidify my desire to go to medical school. Part Mm -hmm. of that was very influential from the internship that's offered by Queens. Mm -hmm. Straub offers a similar program, but those internships were important in forging good mentorship Mm -hmm. through Todd Sito at Queens, one of the cardiologists. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was, I'm not sure what the formal title was, but really a spearheaded quality improvement within the Queens organization. Mm-hmm. And with that, there was a lot of exposure to other shadowing opportunities. And so that really solidified my desire to go to medical school. And I was gladly accepted to Jabsom and graduated in 2013. I was really wavering between internal medicine and family medicine, as probably a lot mm-hmm. of medical s- students can relate. Jill Amore is a amazing mentor Mm -hmm. and it seems impossible to replicate her many roles and what she does for the community at the same time however I recognized that I had limitations of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to go and although holistically I believed that my heart was in family medicine ultimately I knew that in my practice I really wanted to be somewhat focused Mm -hmm. and after spending my internal medicine rotation as a third year at Kuakini, I fell in love with all the grandpas and grandmas there. <laughs> and they are just so sweet and dear, no matter how many times they tell you the same story. It's pretty great every time. And I knew I wanted to go to geriatrics. Mm-hmm. And so there are two routes through that, through internal medicine and family medicine. And But I was still a little worried about whether that was my true calling. Mm -hmm. And so I liked the idea that internal medicine kept those doors open. And at the same time with family medicine, knowing that I'd have to study pediatrics, obstetrics, general surgery. Mm -hmm. And then if I primarily focused on geriatrics, let those skills and knowledge kind of fall by the wayside only to have to resurrect them every 10 years for certification was not the most appealing thing. Fortunately, Jill Amore gave her blessing <laughs> and did not um, shun me after I chose to go into internal medicine. We still remain very good friends to this day. 
And that's how I ended up in internal medicine. And through my journey there, I was still very committed to geriatrics and ended up doing fellowship here at the University of Hawaii. Yeah, Dr. Amoy is quite amazing. <laughs> I think everyone's amazed how she does all she does um, and still is like, you know, functioning and so joyful all the time. Um, so it sounded like you're pretty set since um, like third year of medical school. Did you consider any other specialties within internal medicine? That's a great question. Uh, having grown up around sports, I was certainly interested in sports medicine and orthopedics. Hmm. I was very fortunate after my first year to do an exchange program in Japan. Oh, wow. And not knowing how to speak any Japanese, I thought to myself, what can I shadow or do an exchange program with that doesn't require me to talk? And so I chose surgery. <laughs> and so like a good student, watched in the operating room with all the other Japanese medical students. And as time went on and, and it was solidified also in my third year, I realized that being in the operating room wasn't really my thing. And part of that had to do with the lifestyle and what the interests were. Mm -hmm. I saw that I really wanted to develop a long-term relationship with my patients. I think that was extremely valuable in my own satisfaction and career to know that I wanted to see my patients more than just a few times. Mm -hmm. And pediatrics certainly was also, I think, very appealing. I think a lot of people go into medicine uh, having one of their only exposures to medicine being their pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of great community pediatricians here in Hawaii. And so a lot of medical students also think about becoming a pediatrician. Um, a lot of people remarked at how well I interacted with kids and they thought I would make a great pediatrician. But ultimately that too, I realized on the one hand, it made me very sad to see the very sick children mm -hmm. who were diagnosed with very serious illnesses. And at the same time, the outpatient care, doing well child checks was not exactly the most intellectually stimulating <laughs> thing to me. And I thought that internal medicine was really challenging uh, and geriatrics, another layer on top of that with the complexity that a lot of our kupuna face. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was really exciting. And the fact that I just got along so well with a lot of our kapuna, uh, it just felt like a calling. Yeah, so I think you mentioned, you know, just like loving all the grandmas and grandpas. And I would imagine I think one important skill would be like just being a good listener. Um, do you have any other things that you think are important characteristics to being a good geriatrician? I think having a healthy dose of skepticism is really important in geriatrics. Hmm because I think that there is unfortunately ageism towards our kapuna and whether that be feeling that they don't have as much of a purpose or role in our society or that things are too advanced or there's not options. I think that's a, uh, an, frankly an embarrassment to our society to treat our kapuna in that manner. Mm -hmm. And I think having that skepticism to listen to your gut and really make sure that you've gone over things with a fine tooth comb to ensure that you've really done the best that you can for your senior patient. Mm -hmm. Although many of our seniors have neurodegenerative diseases, and so 
yes, there is going to be decline in function, physical, mental, spiritual. Um, you can remain that light in their life and make sure that you're doing the best service you can for them. Mm-hmm. So I just want to talk a little bit about like the training pathway. So you said internal medicine um, residency for three years. And then how long was the fellowship? So fellowship varies between one and two years. So it's not a big ask to go and do a fellowship in geriatrics. The first year is pretty set, and that's a national similar standard of having a lot of clinical rotations and training. And then the second year is often optional. So the Mm -hmm. second year can be focused and tailored to what your interests are. At least here at the University of Hawaii in the second year, some people choose to do a concurrent medical education fellowship. Mm -hmm. Some people choose to focus heavily on research. Uh, Some people just want to focus more on clinical experience or certain aspects of geriatrics and subspecialties of other fields that overlap with geriatrics, such as geriatric psychiatry, Mm -hmm. geriatric neurology, and really enhance their knowledge and skill set in that second year. But for a lot of people, they choose to do a single year before moving on to clinical practice. Okay. And then is the, I guess, fellowship program all outpatient training? It has a good variety. So I think internal medicine has a great foundation Mm -hmm. for geriatrics just because of the complexity of medicine that you'll see in your training. And so coming into geriatric fellowship, hopefully I wasn't ahead of myself, but I I felt fairly confident and at least comfortable managing Mm -hmm. a lot of medical problems. And fortunately that was much of the case But what I came to find in the first year was that a lot of the training actually focused on leadership. So Mm -hmm. a lot of community geriatricians take the lead in spearheading efforts. So, for example, um, a lot of the vaccination efforts are spearheaded by geriatricians, uh, given that the most at-risk population Mm -hmm. is our seniors. And how to be not just a physician, but a physician leader Mm -hmm. and knowing the different administrative roles that you'll have to probably carry on in your career path. Uh, The outpatient part is some of it. And so there is a variety of both clinical, like in the office, office office-based practice, as well as some home visit Mm -hmm. care, which is a fraction of what people often experience in family medicine and in their medical school training. I think as a JABSM student, I went on a single home visit and that was with Jill Amori. (laughs) to Waialua, and that was a glimpse into what my future would be, I think, (laughs) not knowing that that would be my future. Um, But there's also some inpatient consultation. You deal with some of the most complex and challenging cases in the hospital as an inpatient consultant Mm -hmm. in geriatrics, as well as doing nursing home care, which is something that most people do not get in their clinical training. I've never even stepped foot inside a nursing facility. And so that does take up probably half of your clinical training in your first year. Yeah, so I guess once a person kind of completes a fellowship in geriatric medicine, what are like the options for practice? It's great that there's actually a lot of options. And in Hawaii, it's the same. So Queens is a really good example. And there's probably some bias since I work for them. But... At Queens, we have four different service lines. So one is inpatient consultation. So a lot of geriatricians can become like an inpatient consultant. Uh, It's nice. You're not the first page uh, and you're often 
come on just like any other specialist would. You give your recommendations. If you feel like you don't have that much more to offer, you sign off the case. Most of your work is done in the first couple of visits. There's also the opportunity to be what's called a SNFist or SNFist, uh, and that is someone who regularly rounds and focuses primarily on nursing home care. Mm -hmm. So patients who are there for short-term rehabilitation or even long-term care need an attending physician. So that is also a career path. It's nice. There's a lot of flexibility in that career path and able to arrange your schedule mainly because your patients don't really leave. You can kind of go when you want to, and there they are. <laughs> home visits, which is my primary practice, mm -hmm. is exciting because similar to nursing home care, your patients are unfortunately homebound, um, but they're usually under great care either by their own family or by others in like a foster or care home setting. And that's nice because they are some of the most vulnerable patients. Mm -hmm. So you really get to delve into your medicine and be the doctor for them. It's not that dissimilar to doctors of old who used to travel around with their medicine bag around town because many of these patients can't get out to see their specialists. It's very difficult for them to obtain diagnostic tests. And so you really have to rely on your clinical skills to make accurate diagnoses and serve the patient in the best way possible. Certainly others also practice primary care and they're armed with an additional year of geriatrics training. They feel much more suited to handle the full spectrum of care for mm -hmm. their adult patients. Uh, so some people are not full-time geriatricians, only seeing geriatric patients, but that becomes a subset of their population that they help serve. And finally, specialty clinic. So many, like other specialists, some geriatricians choose to only do consultation for geriatric patients and follow along in that regard too. Awesome, yeah, so it sounds like there's, there's a lot of options um, after the fellowship. So when exactly would a patient like be referred to see a geriatrician versus maybe just being, being managed um, by their primary care physician? That's a great question. I get asked that by family friends all the time of when should I start seeing you? <laughs> First, I have to apologize and tell them I'm seeing mostly homebound patients, so I really hope and pray that that doesn't happen to them anytime soon. But in general, geriatrics is mainly about syndromes rather than age. So a lot of times, because of Medicare and other things, the, the number 65 gets thrown out there. Mm -hmm. But in my clinical practice, I've seen people who have dementia in their 50s. I've also seen very high-functioning 90-year-olds who still drive and still babysit and still keep up with their hobbies are, and do very well in cognitive testing. So it really actually comes down to what they're facing, and, and that's kind of when a geriatrics referral is appropriate. So I think Dr. Michelle Bellantoni from John Hopkins listed it very well, which is that Often, a, an appropriate geriatrics referral has to do with when someone suffers from multiple medical conditions, and they find that treatment for one condition negatively affects the second condition, or third or fourth. Um, they're experiencing functional decline or frailty, or they have a disease associated with aging, such as dementia, incontinence, or osteoporosis. And finally, one of the favorite things that I like to help manage is polypharmacy or 
multiple medications. Um, our bodies change as we age. It's important to always re-inventory and think about what medications may be actually starting to cause harm and think about deprescribing. Yeah, so these patients are very complex. You know, a lot of times they have multiple, I guess, like medical problems. So what other specialties are you working the closest with, like in your practice? If we're talking about MD specialists versus other specialists, I'd like to start actually with the other specialists because I think that was one of the other appeals of going to geriatrics. Coming from a childhood of team sports and really valuing my friendships and other teammates, geriatrics is perfect for that. You work all the time with your nurses, with your physical and occupational therapists, with your social worker, often with your dietitian and pharmacist, and together develop a care plan. Sometimes it's not all at the same time, and it comes in pieces, but there are opportunities to do like a full interdisciplinary team meeting, and that's super valuable of just really going over things and trying to develop the best care plan for a patient. I don't claim to be an expert in everything, but in it's nice to have so many other people who ha do have the expertise mm -hmm. on your side and caring for the patient. For MD specialists, oftentimes we find ourselves working very closely with the primary care if we're the, if we're the specialist. But other times it can be with the cardiologist, the pulmonologist, neurologist, psychiatrist. I would say that psychiatry is one of the top specialties we work with, mainly because of a lot of the neuropsychiatric symptoms mm -hmm. associated with dementia, which mm -hmm. is probably the most common single illness that I encounter on a daily basis. Um, but a lot of these folks, you know, they've survived multiple heart attacks, heart surgeries, COPD exacerbations. And so all those things start to end up at the end of their life. And so working with their cardiologists, pulmonologists to really manage those end stage symptoms and diseases. And with the neurologist, the same thing. A lot of neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, dementia, mainly the most common that we see and having to work with them in titrating medications and avoiding causing drug interactions for those patients. Can you take us a little bit more into what your typical day or maybe like week looks like? Sure. It's exciting because I find myself in different neighborhoods around the island. Currently, our practice is that a provider goes out by themselves and takes their equipment. Uh, if they're due for vaccinations or other procedures, we make sure to stock up on that supply before we mm -hmm. head out. But usually it's geographically arranged. It's sad when it's not, and I find myself rushing from <laughs> one side of the island to the other, but that is a very rare occurrence. Most of the time, our appointments are arranged by geography. And so we go from house to house. Uh, it can be a mixture of private homes, people living in their own homes with support of family or hired caregivers, to going to small foster homes uh, where a family often is caring for a few individuals to larger care homes where there's a staff of several nurse aides, maybe a nurse, and others around supporting uh, more than a handful of patients at once. And so Similar to how you would in an outpatient study, I review the chart, whatever data they've able to provide with to me, such as what their dietary intake's been like, their bowel movements, 
how their sleep schedule has been, any other symptoms that have co come up. And, you know, we work together and develop a plan to address those things. That's a typical day for me. And then back on the road and then finally either back to the office or home to finish charting. Mm. So. so I guess has has home care, I guess, changed a lot with COVID? It has. There were some challenges early on. There was questions of how would we care for people with COVID mm -hmm. uh, or people potentially exposed to COVID, uh, given the many of the caretakers of our seniors work multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they're working in multiple environments, potentially uh, incre increasing exposure. So we did switch to telemedicine for a while. Fortunately, because of the nature of our practice, we had launched a program that we called Provider Du Jour, kind of like Soup Du Jour, and having a provider in the office who would help triage a lot of our phone calls and manage acute symptoms, uh, since it could be hard to get a hold of us while we're out on the road and the middle of a challenging visit. And so the in-office person was already, as we rotated, we had experience with telemedicine. So we were actually ahead of the game, which is really nice. It was actually a pretty smooth transition mm -hmm being able to switch a lot of things to telemedicine. Given that a lot of your patients, you know, longitudinal, you're kind of walking with them through the journey and even to the end of life, I would imagine you have a lot of conversations about end of life. Um, are those difficult? And do you have any like strategies or, or tips on how to have these types of conversations? Sure. I think having difficult conversations is the quote unquote procedure of geriatrics. That's often similar to how you'd consult a gastroenterologist to do a colonoscopy. Sometimes you call in a geriatrician to have those difficult decisions. Palliative care also often does a lot of difficult decisions as well. In terms of having difficult decisions, I think it's very important. There are mnemonics out there uh, that are helpful for having those difficult discussions, but really it's trying to put yourself in the other person's mm -hmm. shoes, whether that be the patient themselves or a family member looking at what are they what are they dealing with mm -hmm. and oftentimes we're called in when there's a crisis uh, it's always nice to try to have some of those conversations when it's not a crisis mm -hmm. but when you're called in you're called in and i think it's understanding what challenges the family and and the individual are going through and i think being an active listener, letting them have the space to speak is super important because a lot of times when you've been called in, other people have tried and potentially caused a breakdown in the therapeutic alliance between the providers and the individual or family. And so often there's frustrations that need to be vented uh, before you can move on and transition to a better conversation and really care for the patient mm -hmm. does it ever get easier with a lot of practice or do you still feel like it's pretty challenging to have those conversations i think the answer is both i think on the one hand it's easier because as you move on in your training as you've had a lot of these difficult conversations you start to pick up and hopefully you have the emotional intelligence to really read the room read the body language and understand that there are certain words and phrases that provide comfort, that provide uh, a safe space for people to speak freely. And you hear what works. You, you can read and see the response from people. So that part gets easier. 
I think the part that's hard is that every situation is different. Mm -hmm. And so it, it does somewhat of create that little bit of that rush that you get with a new experience because it's never going to be exactly the same. And I think it, that is part of the joy of being able to have these difficult conversations as difficult as they are. You may be one of the first people they've ever talked to about regarding these topics. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, looking for how you can bridge any type of conflict that's happened already. That part never gets that much easier. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You mentioned earlier you kind of the goal is to have some of these conversations, you know, before the very end of life. Um, how do you like bring up those, I guess, in a in a natural way that's not like, you know, off putting to the patient? Mm. I think what's surprising to maybe a lot of people in the medical community is that a lot of patients actually are not afraid of talking about end of life mm -hmm. and talking about they they want to know they've built up this relationship with their physician and they trust their physician mm -hmm. and they know that their physician has a lot of experience versus the rest of us have one life here on this earth and so knowing that they, they're not sure. They're not sure what to expect. And so talking to their doctor is actually a great source of comfort. And when they've done studies, they've actually seen that patients on the, the majority of them want one to know that their doctor cares about them, knows that they care about not just their physical well-being, but them as a person, whether that be their spiritual health, their emotional health, mental health, and their physical health, that holistic picture. And that is what's important to them. So it's actually not that hard to bring up. I think often the way that I bring it up is asking them, you know, right now you've had some challenges. So often they, it's hard to make it to the 90s without any type of <laughs> medical problems, but there are those individuals, which is really awesome for them. Um, but of the way that I often phrase it for a lot of my patients is like, you've had a really great life you've overcome a lot of challenges, whether they be health related or not, you know, we're at a point now where you've probably outlived a lot of your friends and family. Have you ever thought about the end of your life? Sometimes you'll get a very shocking response and people have had that inner sense of knowing that it's something that they should talk about and plan for. Some people, it just has never crossed their mind or it's taboo to talk about mm -hmm. that. And if it is taboo, often I, I try to bring up what fears are there. Sometimes it's just completely traditional. It's a cultural barrier to not talk about it and really just giving that space. And sometimes you can find ways to talk about it without directly talking about it. And I think that just takes time and relationship building to get to that point. Yeah, um, I think just building that relationship in general and having someone like, you know, trust you so dearly that they're willing to share some of these very vulnerable things, I think it's just a really special um, place to be. Um, so what what's the best and the worst part of your job? I think the best part of my job is when I just see patients. I think on a day-to-day -day basis, being able to serve my community and feel like I've made a difference, mm -hmm. or at least that we're maintaining a good quality of care and a good quality of life, I think that brings me the most joy. And I think your day-to-day -day has to bring you some level of 
happiness and joy and satisfaction in your job otherwise it's so easy to fall into burnout Mm -hmm. i think the hardest part of my job often is probably the interprofessional part which is whether that be related to patient care so sometimes a medical error has happened sometimes it's a difference of opinion in medical decision making and i think that part is hard because you're somewhat walking on eggshells trying to navigate egos pride and your own pride too because i think as a geriatrician you often pride yourself on being thorough on noticing the little details because you're often afforded the time as a geriatrician that's the expectation is that geriatric patients take a long time quote unquote but you know you're just trying to do the best you can to serve the your patient and taking that time so that part i think is challenging mm-hmm. i really like what you said about you know finding joy in the the day-to-day um i think things can become so mundane and you can just start going through the process but i think that's like you said when burnout can happen when we stop finding joy in the in the mundane things um so do you work with like the families a lot in general and, and does that ever get difficult it can be i think we work with families It depends on how involved they are. Sometimes we have our patients who are under really good, what we call custodial care. So whether that be with a foster home or care home and families rest easy knowing that when they visit, Mm -hmm. they can be son and daughter or spouse or family member without having to worry about being medical provider. I think that's much more challenging is when someone's playing those multiple roles Um, especially if they're the one doing it alone. So Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon, unfortunately, to have patients who their only caregiver is a single person, um, whether that be a spouse, a son or a daughter. And there are other family members, but there's not quite the same level of participation that either the sole caregiver or the patient would want. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very hard. I think that is something that we try to counsel families out a lot because caregiver burnout is a very real entity is something that we monitor on a frequent basis Mm -hmm. yes i just wanted to move into a conversation about uh, work-life balance i think we touched a little bit upon it earlier um but do you have enough time outside of your practice to do things that you enjoy i do i think that's an important part of clinical practice because if you have things that give you a time to reflect and a time to recharge that's the best way to serve your patients. Mm -hmm. If you're finding yourself spending the majority of your time on patient care and you don't allow time for yourself or your family, um, then that opens yourself up to burnout Mm -hmm. and that in turn affects the the patient care you can provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talked about uh, finding joy, I guess, and having a lot of these hard conversations and being able to walk patients through it, but does that ever take an emotional toll on you? It definitely does. Uh, I'd be lying if I said that it was easy doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. I can recall a time, probably a year and a half ago, I had a patient who, it's very challenging. She is in chronic respiratory failure. She lives at home with a ventilator. And for whatever reason that occurred prior to me taking over her care, her family, remaining family was somewhat distrustful of each other. So there was a lot of questioning of what other people's motives were. And and at the end, often 
whether the patient herself really knew what she wanted. Being on a ventilator made it very difficult for her to communicate. And so we spent a lot of time um, talking about goals of care because she had been in and out of the hospital multiple times within a calendar year uh, with ventilator-associated pneumonia. So having that discussion and feeling like we had invested all this time and energy to try to come to the same page and ultimately it was unresolved. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of, the, one of the more challenging times in my career, knowing that I, I felt like I went the extra mile, you know, stayed at a patient's house, went to a patient's house at the end of the day, staying there from 6 to 9 p.m., having an hours-long discussion and knowing that when I drove away that nothing had actually changed. And I think that was very heartbreaking for me to know that as best as I tried, the family and the patient were just not quite ready to move on to what I felt was best for the patient to mm -hmm. know that we need to have clear goals. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to sign up for hospice, but knowing that people weren't left in limbo wondering what to do when mm -hmm. things started getting scary, when numbers started getting into the red, what do we do? And I think that leaving that as unresolved was very hard in my career. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine like all physicians have a point in time where, you know, no matter what they did and all the effort they put in, like the outcome just just wasn't as they hoped. Um, so I guess how do you cope from that and how do you like bounce back and remain resilient through those times? I think first and foremost is to make sure that you talk to someone. So whether that be a colleague uh, spiritual advisor, family or friend, and just let yourself be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, tell them, you know, hopefully without violating any privacy, but just tell them the situation and how you're feeling about it. And I think having those folks in your life to reinforce that, one, that you're not a failure, uh, two, that you're actually proficient and excellent at your, not just proficient, but excellent at your job, and excellent in the care that you provide and that you went in with the best of intentions, I think that's super important um, and having that surrounding. I think after that is often recalling the times that you've had success, mm -hmm. you know, that um, it hasn't all been dark and troubling times, that you've had times where you've noticed and the family has felt the impact you've made in their family member's life. I think that's important to contrast with times where you felt like a failure mm -hmm. and that these things will ebb and flow in your career, that you won't always be successful in what you determine or define as successful can actually appear as success later down the road. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to keep in mind as well, that you may think it looks bad now, but it may be an opportunity in the future for something even better. Do you have any personal examples of that? You know, like how something seemed bad in the moment, but later you saw it as a blessing maybe? One is an example of a patient who had severe advanced Parkinson's disease. Um, the family was very struggling coping with the individual's progression and that likelihood of not being able to return home and having to rely on 24-7 care. And at that point, it was also clear that 
the patient was going to have recurrent episodes of complications. Mm. And so having that difficult discussion at first, it seemed like we are not going to have success here. I don't think they're ready, uh, even though we've had multiple discussions. And ultimately, a complication occurred and the patient had aspiration, developed pneumonia, and passed away. However, sometime later, maybe in a week or two, the daughter reached out and actually wanted to talk. And I was just, I had this, I just felt my heart kind of drop into my stomach. I just was afraid, as a lot of people are afraid of in our country, is of litigation. You know, did we do something that upset the daughter to the point where she's going to try to find a way to sue us? Mm. And I walked into the room, very nervous, probably had a cold sweat. And, um, and to my surprise, she actually wanted to just really thank us in person because she didn't really know if she'd have another opportunity given that her father had passed away. And so technically we weren't going to the nursing home anymore to see him since he'd passed away, but she wanted to make sure that we met in person because she just wanted to thank us so much for guiding her through what was a very difficult decision. She was in the medical field, so her family relied mm-hmm. on her a lot in the medical decision-making. And so there was this immense guilt that she felt mm-hmm. of that she was, quote-unquote, the one choosing for her father to be let go or die. Um, and that was heart-wrenching for her to have to process that. But after our multiple conversations and talking about what his goals and what his values were, as a person, she felt at peace, much um, at peace with her decision. And that was really important for her to be able to go through the grieving process without it transforming into complex grief, which is a, a very real possibility for her. So I think that was really important too. Yeah, I think it's just super encouraging to hear that even if you know you can't change the outcome, you can still make all these really important differences and impacts in, in the lives of both the patient and their families. So I think, yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, so just, I guess, to finish us off, uh, we're just gonna have some time for advice. So the first question is, uh, what do you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your training? I think the main thing is to take more chances. So not in the sense that you're gonna recklessly do a lumbar puncture unsupervised or intubate somebody without anybody around, but I think I think Jabsum does a great job of fostering this sense of risk-taking in the sense that you're not afraid to put yourself out there mm-hmm. with your ideas, with your what you think might be best. And that's been actually noted by a lot of residency programs out there is that Jabsum students tend to, instead of just shrinking from the limelight and deferring to somebody else, they will they will put their neck out there in terms of having a professional opinion. And I think that's super important because um, it allows yourself to be a learner continuously. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows you to not always just rely on other people um, and and really it helps you keep up as a practitioner so that you're not kind of settling in Mm -hmm. a sense of just going with what you know and always like, well, maybe there's actually something to it. 
and you do a little bit more reading, a little bit more searching, and actually you find maybe additional answers. I think a good example actually happened earlier today with, have, we have a patient who was discharged from the hospital after contracting COVID-19 pneumonia, and he had made it very clear to his family that he did not want to go back to the hospital. So he's being supported at home with supportive care through a hospice agency, but he's having increasing uses of oxygen. And unfortunately, everything's a bit of a business. And so there was discussions about whether two oxygen tanks or a concentrator plus another oxygen tank is really appropriate in this setting. And, and I think it was an opportunity, even though I did not know this patient well or this daughter, to really refocus the discussion about well, why are we on oxygen? Let's remind ourselves of why dad's on oxygen. It's because he's recovering from COVID pneumonia. And so what are those symptoms? Being short of breath, coughing, um, and just looking very fatigued and tired. And so asking her, instead of us chasing a particular oxygen saturation and saying, okay, we, got to, we have to get to 92, we have to get to 92. You know, thinking about, well, what does it look like when he's, not doing well and what is his oxygen saturation of those well oh if he's in the 70s or the low 80s yeah he verbally says that he can't breathe and that he's uncomfortable it's like well what is it at 89 versus 92 it's like well it's actually kind of the same he looks comfortable he's you know resting and he's not breathing fast and kind of refocusing and saying like i think that's our answer is that Yes, we need more oxygen than probably hospice is used to, um, but it is for the comfort of the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, clearly on just one concentrator, he's not that comfortable. So we need that supplementation. But are we gonna keep going up with that to get to a certain number? That's also not what we're gonna do. So it's somewhere actually in between. I think that helped reframe and refocus um, both the hospice agency and the daughter's expectations mm -hmm. and try to come to that middle ground of, you know, how are we best serving the patient? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see how it's really easy to kind of get caught up in the numbers and making sure you're doing everything like technically correct and kind of just missing the patient along the way. Um, so yeah, it's a really good example. Um, so just our last question. Um, first, does, does Hawaii need more geriatricians and and um, if yes, like what advice would you give to a student that's interested in geriatrics? Absolutely. Without question, we need more geriatricians. Um, the national fill rate for fellowship is 50%. So it's really low. So if you want to go geriatrics and you want to do a fellowship, chances are you will get taken by a program somewhere. And the reason that it's important, especially here in Hawaii and not just Hawaii, but nationally, is that we have a strange bell curve, right, as a result of the baby boomers and that a significant amount of our population is going to be in the Medicare phase of their life. And so they will inevitably, some of them will develop conditions that require a geriatrician specialty. And so it is important that we have more. Now, does everyone have to be a full-time geriatrician? No. As I said, mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of people, both hospitalists and primary care physicians, supplement their training with geriatrics, which is not a huge investment given that fellowship can be as short as one year. 
And so that can really make a difference in the quality of care they can provide to their patients um, and hopefully um, reduce just medical errors, problems, complications from polypharmacy. And so that's important too. And I think as geriatricians, we recognize that the, sh the physician shortage is not just limited to geriatrics. So as physician leaders, the more that we can equip our community uh, to really be able to manage our aging population, that's also important as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom, for coming today and sharing your story. I was just so inspired by all the stories of your patients, your passion to serve our kupuna, and how you really continue to practice patient-centered care. You're super welcome. Glad to be here. That's all we have for you today. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Join us next time on Doc's Talk Story. And until then, we would love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and input as we continue on this journey together. <laughs>